Why do you go to fruit stands? You go to the fruit stand because you want to buy some fruit. Why do you go to lumber stores? Because you want to buy lumber. Why do you go to shoe stores? Because you want to buy shoes. Why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? I'm going to assume, because I think this is true, that the vast majority of people who go to church and all that come to church that know the Lord Jesus Christ come because they want to be faithful. They want to be marked by faithfulness. They want to faithfully honor and glorify God. They want to faithfully understand what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to faithfully live out the high, high calling of Christ in a lost and dying world. So we're going to assume today that you're here because you want to be faithful. You don't want to be unfaithful. You want to be faithful to the high calling of Christ. I mean, why else would you subject yourself to biblical preaching? It's not that we have this misguided notion that we will ever live perfect lives lives this side of heaven. We know we're going to blow it. We know we're going to mess up. Sometimes we might backslide, take a couple steps back. But overall, we want to be a faithful church, and we want to be faithful individuals so that when our Lord and Savior calls us home, we are not ashamed of how we have lived our lives. Now, faith, one could argue, is largely an internal virtue, an attitude, a mindset, a belief system, but faithfulness is really a verb. It's really a verb. And so if you are a person who's characterized by faithfulness, there are going to be certain external markers in your life. There's going to be things people can point to and say, okay, yeah, that person is marked by faithfulness. So I'm always curious, of course, what it means to be faithful. And I want not only to be faithful on the inside or a man of faith on the inside, but I want to be faithful on the outside. And in the scriptures, there's... Several different ways that a person can manifest faithfulness. But in the scriptures, one of the prime manifestations of faithfulness is in the area of what you preach and the way you preach. Now, the word preach in the modern church has largely been professionalized. It's like, well, Aaron is a preacher. But I'm not using the word in a professionalized way today. I'm just talking about good old-fashioned gospel proclamation, which is the call of every one of you in the room that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's a conversation over a cup of coffee, whether it's more of a formal witnessing opportunity, a lecture, a debate, a Q&A, a lesson you might be teaching in school, or a formal homily on a Sunday morning, All of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ are called in some way, shape, or form to preach the word of God, to preach the word of God, to proclaim it. This is part of what it means to be an ambassador or a herald. And again, faithfulness is demonstrated not only in what you preach, but also in the way that you preach. So as we enter back into the the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, the lesson today really is largely about faithfulness in preaching, faithfulness in preaching. And what we're going to learn is that faithfulness is expressed in hopeful biblical proclamation, hopeful biblical proclamation. So the hope part has to do with 
the way you preach and the biblical proclamation part has to do with the what you preach. And we want to get both of these down. We want to get the content down, but we also want to get the delivery down. So join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And the first question we could ask as we enter into the text is how does faithful and unfaithful proclamation compare? So there's kind of two columns here we're going to see in the, in the text. We could create a little chart. And on one side, we could have faithful proclamation. On the other side, we could have unfaithful proclamation. We're going to see both sides of the coin here. You'll find believers, of course, who fall, unfortunately, into both categories. Churches, preachers, teachers, evangelists. Some people are faithful in their proclamation. Some people are unfaithful in their proclamation, either in content or method. Ask yourself, which column am I in? And which column do I want to be in as I move forward in life? Do I want to be faithful or unfaithful? Now, before I take you uh, too far into the text, let me just start by reading the first portion of verse 1. And this kind of answers the question, why preach? For you yourselves know, so this is Paul, Silas, teaching the Thessalonian church, writing them a letter. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, right there, you got something to take home with you. Because this verse reminds us that we proclaim the message of the gospel optimistically. We're pessimistic about human nature. We're optimistic about Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished. And we're optimistic about what God can do by taking sinful people and making them saints. And as this collection of writers wrote to the Thessalonian church, they just testified to the fact that the church is proof that proclamation is not in vain. What you saw today is proof that proclamation is not in vain. Our presence here today is proof that proclamation is not in vain. Do we wish there were more? Yes. But if the gospel didn't work, there wouldn't be anybody here. At least nobody that's genuine. There'd be a bunch of people playing games and pretending to be okay with God. But the gospel works. The gospel actually accomplishes things. Faithful ministry pays dividends. Never, never doubt that. Faithful ministry pays dividends. It paid dividends in Thessalonica, and it continues to pay dividends today. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55:11 said this about God's word. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. This is God speaking. God's like, I will accomplish my purposes through the proclamation of my word. Now, that's not always for salvation. Sometimes it's for damnation. Sometimes it's for judgment. Sometimes God's wrath was poured out upon the people and he warned them and they didn't listen and he wiped out entire nations. But we also know that the word of God brings about redemption and salvation. But regardless, God's word will always, when it's faithfully proclaimed, maybe not in the first minute and a half, but over time, God's word will always accomplish God's design through it. So that means we can have hope. This is a meaningful opportunity 
for us to remind ourselves that we can have hope. So the word of God works. So let's get the rest of the text read. I'm going to read verses 2 through verse 12, and then we'll kind of dissect it together. Verse 2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we discussed that, you know, the Philippian jailer and some of the challenges that took place there. Basically, a church was planted, and then the, the preachers were run out of town. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man. Did you see that? It's kind of important. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is the loving nature of life within the community of faith. It's unlike any other community. It's grounded in God, and it's marked by love. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you, but we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children. So first we have the illustration of a mother nurturing her children. Now we have the illustration of a father. A little bit about fathering here. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So can you see it? There's a list of kind of goods and bads. There's some beauty there and some ugliness that can mark proclamation. And we want to make sure we're in the right category. So let's talk first of all about the beauty side, the faithful ministry. What are some of the characteristics of faithful ministry? of faithful proclamation, as you share your faith, as you preach, as you teach, as you discuss scripture with your children, with your spouse, with your small group, what are some of the characteristics that mark faithful proclamation? Characteristic number one is boldness. You see that in verse two? Boldness is characteristic number one. Now this boldness is only possible if it's rooted in God. If it's rooted in self, it's self-serving. If it's rooted in the applause or lack thereof from people, it'll come and go. But this is boldness that is rooted in God. And it's really impossible to have this kind of boldness unless your life's been transformed by the grace and glory of God. And we've heard a little bit about boldness already that is bestowed upon us in our conversion from one of our one of the young men that was baptized today. It's sourced in God and not in self. Now, I have observed that one of the greatest 
threats to boldness among God's people today is the accusation that if you're bold, you're arrogant. You're a know-it-all. You're intolerant. You're prideful. And you need to be stopped. This is one of the greatest challenges. And unfortunately, it has silenced more Christians than we'd probably like to count. Like, I don't want to be accused of being arrogant. So I'm just going to be quiet. I don't want accused of being opinion, be accused of being opinionated. So I'm just going to be quiet. And we live in a world where subtly and now not so subtly, the church is being under great pressure to zip its lips because we're taught, and especially in a passive country like Canada that actually values passivity and tolerance, we're told that if you are bold in your proclamation of the gospel, that's un-Canadian, it's increasingly being thought of as unconstitutional, and it's contrary to your virtues. And that kind of pressure can easily just cause people to say, I'm tired. I'm just, I'm tired of the fighting. I'm tired of the pushback. I'm tired of the accusations. I don't want to be sued. I don't want to be in court. And so many in the church today have this treasure in their jar of clay, but they've put a lid on it. And let us be reminded that one of the qualifications of faithfulness is boldness. Are you a bold person? You know what the follow-up question is, or statement, if you're not bold, you're not faithful. If you're not bold, you're not faithful. But if you are bold, that is one of the characteristics of faithfulness. But there's more. In verse 2, faithful ministry is also undeterred. It's undeterred. And in the text, there's the word conflict there, right at the end of verse 2. And we're reminded that conflict often, conflict is from a Latin word that just means to strike against. When we're struck against, it can throw us off course. You're driving on the road, someone hits you. It can put your car in the ditch. You're walking in the hallway, someone shoves you. You fall into your locker. Conflict has the capability of deterring you, of getting you off your path, of taking you off your course. But faithful people are undeterred. They are not quieted by conflict. Look what the the writer says. We had much boldness in our God, so it's rooted in God, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's easy to preach when everyone's clapping. But in conflict, when people are trying to push you around, it can get hard, can't it? But the high calling of the church is to be undeterred. And a couple things that are helpful in order to keep us focused is, first of all, be principled. Don't be a pragmatist. Be principled. Let your principles determine your practices. Don't let the practice dictate your principles. So when you love God and you love the gospel and you know it transforms lives and you've been transformed by it, you become a more principled person. And you're like, you know what? Regardless of the conflict, regardless of what's going on around me, I'm going to keep speaking the truth in love because I'm a principled person. Secondly, be fearless. Do you have resurrection hope or do you not? 
we're all dying. As you get older, you feel it. I'm reasonably healthy, but there's things in my body that don't work very well. I have tennis elbow. I have golfer's elbow. I have a hiatal hernia. bothers me in the morning. You might hear at the 9 o'clock service, I, I cough. Stomach doesn't work real well. My, my back's often sore. My neck gets out of joint. I don't remember all that when I was 10 years old. And hopefully I got a few decades left. But we're all headed toward the grave. We're all dying. And we try to do our part to extend our lives, of course. But one thing we do not do is we do not wake up in the morning afraid of death. No Christian wakes up in the morning terrified of death. And if they do, they've just forgotten their resurrection hope. We're not looking forward to it. I often say to people, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm mildly terrified at the method. I hope it's quick. (laughs) But we're not afraid of death ultimately because we know there's life thereafter. So we need to be fearless if we're going to be undeterred. And then we also must be, we also must avoid the temptation to be man-pleasers. Look at verse 4. In the middle there, it says, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, every one of us in this room, I don't care who you are or how much you deny it, on a certain level, we like to be liked. In fact, if you don't like to be liked, it's impossible to have relationships because relationships always involve give and take and consideration of other people. But if your desire to be liked overwhelms you, it's like a dominant desire in your life, it will take you off course from faithful proclamation like that. Because most people don't like what we're doing right now and they don't like what you believe and they're not afraid to make it known. So we cannot live our lives, preachers cannot live their lives walking up on stage on Sunday and thinking, oh, I wonder what people want to hear. I wonder how they're going to react. When it comes to the faithful proclamation of the word of God, this is the faithful proclamation of the word of God. I'm always on good ground when I just preach what God has written. And then we're a casino town, right? So I can use this language. You let the chips fall where they may. You just let the chips fall where they may. So this helps us to be undeterred. So these are two of the first marks of faithfulness. There's a third one, gentleness. Look at verse 7. We have to be real careful here, church. Gentleness. He says, I'm gentle like a nursing mother. You don't see moms like throwing their kids around, banging the stroller into the wall. Shut up, kid. You know, they're, they're gracious. They're gentle. They're protective. I see some of you holding your babies. You love your children. We know that. It would be shocking to see a mother do otherwise. And that's the imagery that the apostles used to help the church to understand the method of delivery. You want to be bold, undeterred, but somehow mix into that gentleness. And in truth churches, Bible churches like ours, the greatest temptation is not biblical compromise. The greatest temptation is usually blowing it in the area of gentleness. 
And it's something we got to work on. Because when you're convicted, you just want to like barf on people sometimes. But we have to be gentle and careful in our approach. We want to see the church grow. So we seek to demonstrate love and kindness. And this doesn't deplete boldness. It actually makes it more meaningful and powerful. We add gentleness to the mix. And then eight, very similar to gentleness, affectionate. The writer says he has affectionate desires, essentially, for the church. He, he loves the church, and he wants the church to be more like Jesus. This should always be my motivation whenever I stand up here. It should always be your motivation when you're confronting your kids, when you're teaching in your small group, when you're serving in the youth ministry, or teaching a women's Bible study, or whatever it might be, sharing your, your, your uh, testimony over the fence. You have love for this person. It's not just, well, I want to be right. I want to prove them wrong. I want to put them in their place because they're dumb and I'm smart. No, you have a desire to see better things in their lives. Jesus could have come and just wiped us all out. And he would have been just in doing so. But he gave himself up for the cause of the gospel. Now, affection, unfortunately, in our culture has largely been sexualized. And there's some people that don't even understand the difference between true affection and sexual affection. But this is like family affection. This is the love that you have for your family members. You know, blood is thicker than water, they say. This is the kind of love that needs to exist increasingly among God's people. And then, there's two more. It's exhortational. So we have the mother serving as the illustration of gentleness. And we have the father in verse 11 serving as the illustration of the exhortation. Now, exhortation essentially is a biblical word which refers to giving instruction or direction to someone. Giving instruction or direction. Now, we don't want to make more of this than we need to, but we also want, don't want to be dismissive of picking up on a little clue here as to the New Testament writer's mindset with regard to how moms and dads parent their children. This is a little sidebar, but it's worth mentioning. And that we don't need to be a gender blender church where everybody's the same. There's a difference between men and women. We embrace that and we're thankful for that. And as a general observation, while moms obviously give instruction, Timothy benefited from the instruction of his mother and grandmother, moms excel in the area of nurturing and care. And fathers should excel in the area of giving instruction and direction. And too often, we flip it and we throw the responsibilities that we should take as dads on the, on the mom, and the mom maybe even forces the father into a different role, and things get all mixed up. And we live in a culture, as we know, that has a pretty messed up view of gender and relationships because there is a mixed up view of what the genders represent and how they function in a relationship. So I think there's something there for us to consider. Exhortation means that when we teach, we instruct and we give direction. Sometimes we might even give suggestions. But if everything you're saying is just a suggestion and there's never a direction, you're probably not preaching from the Bible that we have in our hands today. And then in verse 12, the final characteristic of faithfulness is encouragement. You can see that. He encouraged the church. 
and he was encouraged by the church. Encouragement basically means pushing a person forward with your words. Just push them forward with their, your words. And so when we preach and teach, we instruct, we do it boldly, we seek to be gentle, and all of that. But we also want to encourage people. Hey, you're doing well. Hey, I, I noticed that you are really good at. We know this with children, right? So if we want our children to have a proper view of themselves, what we don't say is what the world says. The power is in you. You know, you're innately good. You can do whatever you want with your life. No, you can't. You're limited by many things. But what we do say to our children is, I love you unconditionally. What we do say to our children is, I love being your dad. I feel blessed by it. We say, that was a really good move you made. I I saw how you interacted with that difficult person. We say, I'm glad glad that you didn't let that get to you. These are the kind of things we say to positively push our children forward. And likewise, we need to do that in the church. You know, false humility is is a detrimental thing in the church. I'm sure you've all met Christians that will never compliment you. And if they do, they always preface it with what I would consider Christian swear words. Don't let it go to your head, but... I'm just like, don't even... Just stop. I don't want to hear anything you have to say next. You just insulted me. Okay? Stop. But when a person just comes up and says, you know what, you've been a huge blessing to me in this area because... You did, a, you did a great job today when you played the drums or when you read that scripture. I'm so thankful for how you interact with my children or thank you for showing up early. You know, there's a lot of people, by the way, especially our musicians, they're here early. And they're here 7.30, which means they got to get up really early, right? And we may not think about that, but there's a lot of work and effort that goes into a Sunday morning worship experience. And we should be thankful for that and all the other things that take place behind the scenes. Encouraging people is a beautiful thing. And what positive affirmation does is it kind of instills within people's minds, okay, the next time that happens, I'm going to do the same thing. That was a good decision. Wasn't maybe sure if it was a good decision, but now I know. It's a good decision. So these are some things that mark faithful proclamation. Now, unfaithful ministry, there's at least three Uh, things we want to avoid. So this is like in the bad column. The first is flattery. You see that word in verse five? Flattery. Like, well, isn't that the same as encouraging? (laughs) No, it's different. Flattery is when you say something to someone because you just know they want to hear it, whether it's true or false, and it's usually not true. What's the difference between flattery and encouragement? Flattery is insincere and it is self-serving. You tell people they want to hear. It's like the, you know, the classic image we have of the sleazy politician that just tells you whatever you want to hear but then breaks their promises or the you know, proverbial, sorry if you're a car salesman, <laughs> sleazy car salesman that just tells you what you want to hear to make the sale. And there's something disturbing about that, isn't it? When you know you've been duped. It's, it's vile. 
How much more vile to take the living, breathing word of God and to seek to flatter people with it by not telling them the truth, by telling them what you think they want to hear. And we could use examples of this all through church history. I'm sure you have your names in your mind right now of preachers or people you know that tell people what they want to hear. And you know what? It's, you, there's usually some truth in it. But it's not the whole truth. And if it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then things get twisted and misunderstood. So we have to make sure we avoid, avoid flattery. That means, little tip, when we share the gospel, for example, we never skip the bad news first. We never skip the bad news. The bad news makes the good news good. So you can use Romans as your example. The first three chapters are all bad news. If we only had Romans chapter one, two, and three, that'd be like a total bummer. But we have chapter four and chapter five and chapter six and so forth. So we have the bad news, talking about our sin and damnation and our lostness and our lack of propensity to seek God. And then it's like, okay, now, now that I know who I really am, the good news is just beautiful grace and mercy. So in proclamation, one of the ways to avoid flattery is not by skipping the good news, but make sure you also share the bad news. Uh, the second one is greed. This is found in verse 5. Greed is when you preach or you proclaim for strings attached. And I think what the writers had in mind here, because they were vocational preachers, is preachers that actually realized, hmm, I could actually make a lot of money in the religion business. And so they built little empires for themselves in order to pad their own pockets, but said, well, we're proclaiming the gospel. And this is something, I mean, <laughs> we, 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 just, we would have to jump online for like two and a half seconds to find countless criticisms of the church as the world assesses the lifestyle of pastors and preachers and motives and all that kind of stuff. There's lots and lots of stuff out there about that. Frankly, though, let's just say this. If you're a proclaimer of the gospel and you work in a factory, let me just stretch you a little bit here. Or you understand that you're an ambassador for Christ and you're a teacher. Or you understand you're a herald for Christ and you're an engineer. Your goal should not be money either. Your ultimate goal should be what? to glorify God and to fulfill the great commission through the vocation that God has put you in. In the process, if that comes with a hefty paycheck, good for you, steward it properly. But none of us in the church should be motivated to go to work, whether it's in the factory or in the church. The ultimate, I'm just here because I want to make money. And we want to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission. And if we are motivated by greed, well, you hear people say, I can't speak out at work. I'll lose my job. Bingo. You're in the unfaithful category. I can't stand up. I might not get the promotion. <laughs> You're in the unfaithful category. We don't go for the money. We do what's right. And if the money follows, the money follows. And if God has other plans for us, he has other plans for us. Finally, verse 6, glory-seeking behavior. This is, this is just so repulsive because when we're preaching the gospel, it's not about us, it's not about us, it's not about us, it's about God, it's about his grace. 
And when anyone who proclaims a gospel, preacher, teacher, small group leader, whatever it might be, does it for self-glory? I mean, that's like gross with a capital G, folks. Gross with a capital G. Glory-seeking behavior. We do not serve the purposes of the kingdom for fame, for fortune, or for glory. We do it because we want glory to be given to God. Yes, there will be leaders among us. Yes, there will be tall poppies in the poppy field. But we do not do this for the glory of self. We do it for the glory of God. So steward your responsibilities in that way. So that's the list. We got the good list and the bad list. We need to consider that for our own lives. And let me just ask, how do you measure up? Now, before we end... The passage also helps us to see the results of faithful ministry. This is kind of some motivational stuff for us, some encouragement. If you look back at verse 13, the Bible says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work with you believers. When we read the word of God, we know, oh, Paul wrote this book and Luke wrote this book and Nehemiah wrote this book. And we might think, oh, these are just the words of men. But through eyes of faith, and faith is a powerful word. It's not about checking your brain at the door. It's not about being driven by emotions. It's a gift from God. It's a means of knowing. Through the eyes of faith, we can read the word of God and we're like, yeah, Paul wrote it, but this is the word of God. Spirit testifies to spirit. I get it. We have faith in the word. Faith in the word requires that we have received it first. You can see that word in the text. And it's a mark of true belief. So, having received it, look at the text again, that when you received the word of God, that which you heard from us, you accepted it. So you receive it. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. I'm going to... I'm going to take it in. I'm going to accept it. Then, what's the third step? It works. It says, which is at work in you believers? It's kind of like so much of life where we, we hear certain things, we're exposed to certain things, but we don't really receive it. It doesn't really change us. So let's do a little poll in the church. How many of you at any point in your education, took French. Just look around how many hands are up. How many of you speak French? Some, but very few. Bonjour. Je ne parle pas de français. How many of you took piano? How many of you will be willing to come up here today and play the piano for us? <laughs> Very few. <laughs> We've received a lot of things, but we haven't necessarily accepted it. We haven't allowed it to work in us. The information comes in, we're like, I'm not interested. Mom made me take it. Didn't like the class. I just want to delete the memory. And people can be like that with church too. You come to church, you hear, you experience, you see, but you don't really internalize it. People often ask me, you know, Hebrews chapter six, is that like loss of salvation stuff? No, read the text. They've tasted, they've touched, they've seen, they've, they've experienced, but they fall away. It's like you took French and piano and you don't remember any of it anymore. 
So it's not enough just to hear the word of God. Receiving is the step beyond teaching. Then that leads to acceptance. And then that leads to the work that God does in our hearts and in our lives. So make sure, church, you will never be a faithful proclaimer of God's word if you haven't internalized it. It won't work. People are going to see through it. But for the Thessalonian church, and this can be true of us, and it's true of so many of you, I see this all the time in our church. Look what it says. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. You get it. It's obvious. You get it. Your lives are being transformed by it. Your marriages are better because of it. Your kids have been blessed by it. Your neighbors have heard about it. So we want to be good examples. We want to practice a lived out faith, not a private faith. But the text goes on. It wasn't easy. For you suffered the same things, and here are their enemies, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So was always to fill up the measure of their sins. It's like they're working hard at opposing the things of God. But wrath has come upon them at last. Faithful proclamation does not mean the absence of resistance. And as as this writer indicates, sometimes resistance comes from those that are closest to us. From our own countrymen, from our own families that may not understand our conversion or our commitments to Christ. And that hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it's one thing if some anonymous person throws a slur at you. But when your parent opposes you, when your, your best friend that you grew up with, maybe stood up in your wedding opposes you, when your children oppose you, when your parents or grandparents oppose you, that's hard. That hurts. But it should not deter us. The church, whether persecuted by, the, by their, own, their own countrymen or the Jews that put to death in Jesus, put Jesus to death, Jesus says they're just filling up the measure of their sin. They're just demonstrating their true colors. Don't be deterred by that. Wrath has come upon them at last. God will deal with them. You do your part. And let God do his part. We need to be faithful in proclamation then. And that means faithful in suffering. Because we're sure of ultimate justice. God's going to do what God's going to do. And when those attacks come, we understand they will hurt at times. And they will hurt deeply. I've been hurt by people. And it's, sometimes it takes years for me to really get to a point where I'm like, yeah, I think I really have forgiven them. Because I'm not thinking about it anymore. But we got to remain faithful in the meanwhile. So let us be a church, a community of faith that stays faithful and true to the proclamation of God's word in a way, in a means that is demonstrated by the apostles in Jesus Christ. And let's trust him that he will do a good work in us and through us to the glory and honor of God. And by the way, let's thank God for the people that were faithful enough to proclaim to our generation the full counsel of God. You know, oftentimes in our churches, we're like, yeah, you know, the old churches, they, they played the organ. We don't like the organ or they didn't get it. They, they forced us to, you know, sing from hymn books and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? Even though methods change, styles change, thank God for a faithful troop of Christians from the time of Christ till now that did their job and passed on the full counsel of the word of God generation 
after generation so that we might be a blessed, we might be blessed and equipped to be missionaries and evangelists in our own culture and in our own day.